Levi Brackman here with Truths, Jewish Wisdom for Today. Thank you so much for joining. In this episode, we are continuing on our series on the Kabbalah. In the previous episode, we spoke about the Tzimtzum, the great contraction of light, of the divine light, of Orin Sof, the infinite divine light that took place when Kesha'Allah Birtsono, Livra Olamot, when it came upon the divine will to create the worlds, then at that point, in order for there to be space for the worlds to be created in, the divine contracted its light in order to leave an empty space. So he contracted all the light to the sides and there was this round empty space. And then the divine reinserted its light through this thing called the kav, which is this line. And we discussed what then happened. There was a creation of these sfirot, of these attributes of the divine, and we discussed whether they were in straight lines or whether they were in circles, whether they were igulim or whether they were yosher. And this was the discussion that we had, but when God wanted to create the universe, he contracted his divine light, and that contraction happened in a way that there was a circle of empty space where there was no divine light, and that allowed for the space for other to be created, for creations. So the creator, in a sense, made space for creations to come about and to be created in that space. So that's more or less, in a nutshell, what we covered up till now. Now, to get further into this conversation about the divine light, the contraction, it's really important for us to try and comprehend what this contraction really was. Does that mean that now there was a space outside of God? Because think about it, if you have God, and God is infinite, God is all-powerful, God is omnipresent, God is omnipotent, omniscient, etc. And if you have all of that, then how can there be something other than God which also exists? Because if you say that, then there is God that exists, and now there is something else that exists, and God is not in that place, so there is something else which takes place where God isn't. And we discussed, well, if God wanted it to be that way, then in a sense he's allowing for that so that maybe it doesn't take away from his perfection or from his all-powerfulness, especially since he wanted to create that space in order to create other so that other should be able to appreciate his greatness. And without there being space for other, there is no place for that thing to be created that could recognize God's greatness. So there might have been a compromise here that God was able to create other. But as soon as he creates other, that means there's a space where he is and there's a space where he's not. And that means that that space where he is not is in itself a being outside of God that God doesn't control. And in that case, we have something other than God, which is also powerful. And we have two powers, not one power. We have the divine power and this other power, albeit created by God, but it exists. So that is conceptually part of the issue with the tzimtzum. And there is a discussion from the early Hasidic masters about whether this tzimtzum is kibshuta or it's not kibshuta. Specifically, that is found in a book called the Tanya, which is one of the early books of the Chabad Hasidic school. In Shari Yechud Ve'amunah, which means the gateway of unity and faith in chapter 7, 
he talks about this idea of whether Tzimtzum is Kipshuto or Tzimtzum is not Kipshuto. That means, is the contraction, did this happen literally, that God literally left a blank space where God isn't, or perhaps it's not Kipshuto, God didn't literally do it, rather it seems like he did it. And according to Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, the first Hasidic Rebbe from the Chabad Hasidic school, he thought that it wasn't Kipshuto. Now, when you read the Eitz Chaim, one doesn't really have a reason to say that it was Kipshuto. Because it seems from the Eitz Chaim himself that there is nothing outside of God. And you find in the Eitz Chaim where he talks about these two perspectives. This perspective of the creator and the perspective of the creation. And one of the examples he gives is in the Zohar, it talks about the Igulim, it talks about the Svirat, or the different attributes, and it talks about the highest attribute being the most inner of these concentric circles, and then the lowest. And when I talk about lowest, what I mean is the one with the least revelation of divinity. So the one with the least revelation of divinity is the most outer of the concentric circles. Whereas the way he discusses it in the Yitzchayim, he says that the highest one or the most outer concentric circle is the one with the greatest revelation of divinity because it is closest to the top of the empty space. And therefore it receives from the kav, from that line where the light comes in, it receives that first. And as the line comes down lower, lower through the concentric circles and it gets to the middle of it, that then becomes the lowest. In other words, the one which receives the least amount of divinity because it's a bit like a cone. That calf which comes in to the empty space after the tzimtzum, after the, the contraction, it's like a cone and the one which is the closest of the concentric circles gets the most light. And as it goes down, it comes into the middle of that circle. It has the least light. So according to the Zohar, though, the center one seems to be the one which receives the greatest amount of divinity. And the outer one is the one which receives the least amount of divinity. Whereas the way the Rechaim Vital explains it in the Yitzchayim, it's the opposite. That the middle one has the lowest divinity because the Kav is like a cone. And the outer one, which is closest to the top of the Kav, that receives the most amount of divinity. So which one is it? And Rabbi Chaim Vital in the Eitz Chaim says that, well, it depends whose perspective you're talking about. If you're talking about the perspective of the divine, then the inner one is the one which has the most receptivity of the divine, because that's considered to be the most inner of it. Whereas if you're considering it from the perspective of the creations, then it's the opposite. That the inner one is the one which has the least revelation of the divine energy. So you do have this perspective in the Eitz Chaim from the Arizal through Rabbi Chaim Vital that there are two perspectives here. There's perspective of the creations and the perspective of the creator, and they're very different.
and there are various other things inside of the Yitzchayim which seem to indicate that perhaps the symptom that happened wasn't a literal symptom. It wasn't literally that God removed all his light, but rather this was a kind of a trick that the light seems to have been removed for the sake of the ability to create the world and to create creations. But that doesn't mean that there was an actual removal of the light itself. What's at stake here is, according to Rabbi Shneer Zaman Liadi, is whether there is such a thing as a space which is totally devoid of the divine. If you argue that this symptom happened, literally, that God withdrew his light, then when you get to the lowest spot of the worlds, where there is zero revelation of divinity, there really is no God there. So this idea that exists, that there could be a situation where God is totally devoid, God doesn't exist there at all, if you take the idea of Tzimtzum being Kibshuto, the contraction happened literally, then what happens is that there's no light at all, then God reintroduces his light. In other words, when you have the Tzimtzum, God contracts all his light from this circle. He reintroduces the light with the kava with this line. That line comes down in a cone. It keeps coming down until eventually it hits the end of the cone and there is no more light coming out of it. And that is the physical realm where we don't see God. If you were living in a higher realm, if you were more connected with the divine because you were in a higher world or in a higher spiritual realm, then you would feel divinity because the light which came through the curve through this cone-shaped line is more in revelation and therefore you would feel the divine. But as you get lower and lower and you come to the end of the cone, then you, the divine is felt less and less because it's less and less revelation until you end up in a situation where there's no revelation. And here in the universe, the physical universe, where we don't feel God at all. And according to those who would argue that symptom is kipshuto, that the contraction happened literally, there's a reason why you don't feel the divine at all. And that's because there is no divine. This is the space where it's actually the emptiest. There's no divine here at all. And therefore, you don't feel the divine. And therefore, in this world, there's no divine. There's no God. And a lot of the Kabbalists don't like that idea. They prefer to say there is God. It's just that that God is like an optical illusion. The fact that we don't see God, the fact that we don't feel God, that's an optical illusion. It's God doing something. That symptom is just God doing something in a way that makes sure that he's not felt by creations. But from the God perspective, he's felt. He is there. God never, from his perspective, contracted his light. He only did this optical illusion, so to speak, in a way that the creations wouldn't feel it. So they could be space for creations and that creations could feel that they are a separate being from the divine, albeit they're not separate at all. From the divine perspective, there was never any separation. God is still there. But from the perspective of the creations, it just feels like God isn't there. This is really an idea of pantheism. Pantheism is this idea that God is really everywhere and in everything, and everything is really God. And then there's this idea of panantheism, which is like a step back from pantheism, which says that God is everywhere, God is in everything, but not everything is God. And so this is really what 
those who are of the opinion that Simtsum is not Kipshuto, that this contraction didn't literally happen, they're really panantheists. And what they're saying is that not everything is God, but God is everything. What does that mean? That it means that while on the one hand, there was a Simtsum, that from the perspective of the human, from the perspective of the creation, it feels as if it exists on its own without God. Because that feels that way, you can't say that that thing is God because it feels like it's separate from God. But in truth, God is everything and God is everywhere. So it's not that I can say this cup of water is God, according to this view, but I can't say it's not God either. I can't say it is God because it feels like it's not God. But since God is everywhere and God is everything, therefore, in a sense, it's God. But it's not God because I can't see it as God. That that's what the Simpson does. So the Simpson makes it not God from my perspective, but in truth, it's God. That is an idea of panantheism rather than pantheism. Pantheism would say, no, this is God. This could actually be God. That is what comes out of this idea of Simpson Lokib Shutah, that there wasn't a literal contraction, rather it was only from the perspective of humans. The opposite of pantheism is the idea that Simpson is Kipshuto. But actually this can't be God at all because God contracted his life from it entirely. And that's a literal thing. And why don't you feel this is God? Because it's not God at all. So that is part of the discussion that goes on. And according to Rabbi Shnizam Navliadi, the first Hasidic Rebbe of the Chabad school, he says that there are some people who say that Simpson is Kipshuto. There was an actual literal retraction of God's light. But he says that that's not the case. And he explains it's impossible to say that there's a place which is totally devoid of God. God is everywhere. So he's a panantheist. Now that we've discussed the difference between Simpson Kipshuto, whether the contraction is literal or Simpson Lo Kipshuto, or it's not a literal contraction, let's go with the view that it's not a literal contraction. And let's understand what that really means. So before we can do that, let's take a step back and understand what contraction, what Simpson could actually mean. So I'm going to use a very basic physical example. If you have orange juice from concentrate, what is orange juice from concentrate? And I remember when I was a kid, we used to travel to the United States. And one of the things we loved, which we were able to get in the United States, which we weren't able to get in England was Tropicana. Tropicana was orange juice, not from concentrate. And it always tasted that much better than the orange juice that we got in England, which was always from concentrate. Don't forget, oranges don't grow naturally in the UK. And therefore, most of the orange juice was from concentrate. I remember coming to the United States and drinking Tropicana. It was like a revelation. <laughs> because it was orange juice, which was actual orange juice, rather than from concentrate, which didn't taste as good. But what is concentrated orange juice? It is orange juice. And it is basically removing some of the water from it taking it into its concentrated form. And then at some point it gets reconstituted with water. And then it's back into its state that it was before. As a matter of fact, you can actually buy very concentrated orange juice. You put it in the freezer and you take it out and then you add water to it and it tastes like orange juice again. So and there are a lot of things that you have in that concentrated form. And what really that means is that you 
you took the thing itself, you removed some of the liquid from it, and you bring it down into its concentrated form. So you can understand what Simpsom is. Simpsom is the idea that you have the orange soft, you have the divine light. And within the divine light, there's ur and then there's etzem. So there's light, and then there's the etzem, which is the essence of the light. And the Kabbalists talk about this. So you have the light, and then you have the essence of the light. Now, when the light is shining, and it's in its essence, the essence is everywhere. The light is shining. The light is, if you like, a manifestation of the essence. The essence itself is not something which can be described in any sense whatsoever. There's no way to describe essence. But there is this thing called Ur, which is the light, which is given off from the essence, and that can be described in some kind of sense. So the contraction is, in a sense, taking the Ur away from the essence. So essence is still there. It's just the light which is not shining anymore. So if you think about it that way, what is essence? Well, essence is this true nothingness. What do you mean true nothingness? In other words, it is totally impossible to describe what it is. And therefore, it is either the true thing itself or it's the true nothingness. Because there's no way to describe it. And therefore, it's the true thing, which is ayin. It's the ayin ha-miti. It's the true nothing. When you say something came from nothing, that is that nothing which something came from. And it's in stages. You have the quintessence, and then you have the light. And then from the light, you have gradations of it until you get to this physical world. But somehow for the physical world to become into being, the light had to be contracted. And therefore now the worlds can be there, but the essence was never contracted. So you take away the light in a sense. Think about the, the concentrated orange juice. You take away a lot of the water. You still get the essence of the goodness, which is still there, but it's much smaller amount. So that is... In some way, the idea of the contraction, one way of explaining it. The Hasidic masters explain it differently, which I think is worthwhile thinking about. And one which can be explained in a more conceptual manner. And in a manner which is less focused on a physical analogy and more on a mental analogy. And therefore, it's perhaps easier to try and understand it that way. Although... Again, I'm going to describe how both of them have their drawbacks. And none of them really explain this idea of Simpson really well. The way the Hasidic masters explain it is that it's like if you want to explain something to a student. So here I am. I'm trying to explain these concepts on this podcast. And these are concepts which are somewhat difficult to understand. And I'm trying to explain it to the uninitiated. So when I think about who the audience is, I think probably the audience are people who aren't scholars of Kabbalah. These are people who are the Kabbalah interested. And here I'm going to try and explain some of these more difficult concepts in the Kabbalah to an audience which is uninitiated in the ideas of the Kabbalah. Well, how do I do that? Well, the first thing I try to do is I say, well, look, the way I understand it, I'm going to put to one side for a moment. And what I'm going to do now is try and understand to my audiences, try and understand the ideas that they have in their head that they already understand, and try and relate then these ideas to how they already understand things. So I'm going to connect it to something that they already understand. In order to do that, I need to understand to my audiences very well. If you ever talk to a marketing person, they will say to you that the first thing you need to do is understand who your audience is. 
and then understand what problem of the audience you're trying to solve. And then you show how whatever you've created, whatever product you have to sell is going to solve their problem and then you'll make a sale. That's how you can bring a lead in and then eventually make a sale because you understand them and their problem. And from understanding them and their problem, you can then go back and say, well, this is what my product is. And I'm going to connect my product with their problem and show how my product solves their problem. And then I can get a sale. So in, in a similar kind of way, this is what one does if one wants to teach anything. So I'm trying to teach an idea from the Kabbalah. I have to, for a second, forget about how I understand it, delve down into the listener to the audience, understand who they are, what they're trying to understand, and then go back to my understanding and then try and relate it to them so they can understand it. In some way, that's the symptom. Now, the question is, when I am removing from my mind, so to speak, the way I understand it, and I'm now delving into the mind, the mindset of the audience, does that mean that all the way I understand it has gone? It hasn't gone, it's still there. I still understand it that way. But for that moment, I am choosing to forget about the way I understand it and try and understand who the audience is. And then when I do that, then I go back to the way I understand it and I draw a little bit down from it in a way in which I can now explain it to the audience. So I am, if you think about it, the way I understand all of this, or the way the teacher understands things, they understand it because they've studied it for many years and they have it in all the details in their mind. If they took all of that, the way they understood it, and then just dropped it on the student, the student might be overwhelmed. The student might not understand it. The student might say, I'm uninitiated. I can't understand any of that. And therefore, it will go right over their head. So you can't take the way this teacher understands it in all of its details and just take that and drop it onto the uninitiated student because it's just going to go right over his head and he's not going to understand it. So what you do is you do a simpson. You say, okay, one sec, let me forget how I understand it. Okay, now I've removed that. That is the Simpson. That's the contraction. Now there's an empty space. The space now for me to go and understand how the student and how the audience understands things. What are the things that they know? And now I've delved down there. So I've removed the way my understanding for a moment. I've delved into the audience and understand who the audience is. Now I go back to how I understood it and I draw from that just enough in order for the student to be able to understand it. Now the student can understand it. Now in that sense, since they're uninitiated, they don't have a lot of Kabbalistic background, so they might not yet understand it from that explanation in the same way the teacher understands it. But they will have some kind of understanding on their level. So back to what the God did. God wanted to create the universe. He needed to create space. So he took his orange soft. He took his light. And again, that orange soft, when you removed it, doesn't mean it was totally removed. It just now, it was hidden, but it was still there. Just like the teacher's understanding is still there. It's just now it seems like it's not there. Now he can understand what he wants to create. And then he can draw down through the curve, through this line, which is in a cone, enough light in order to be able to 
have these universes and have creations. One of the things that it's important to understand here is that I'm now explaining a bunch of things and I'm using words. Each word on its own is made up of letters and the words then are strung together in sentences and sentences into paragraphs and then into chapters and then we wouldn't call this chapter but we're going to call it an episode. And then you have a series of episodes. And eventually, if you've listened to all the episodes together, you will get an understanding of the Kabbalah. But each letter makes up a word, and each word makes up a sentence, and each sentence makes up a paragraph, etc. And each letter on its own is just a letter. And each word on its own is just a word. And each sentence is then it starts to make more sense. But in order for the whole thing to make sense... It needs to be constituted in such a way that the letters and words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters, etc. And when it all comes together and then someone understands it, the intelligence of it starts to come into focus. And it has a different life. It's not just letters and words and paragraphs. Rather, it's an intellectual idea which is more than just the letters. So when you put all these letters, words, paragraphs, chapters together into a book, that book then is a intelligent concept. It's ideas. There's something there which is beyond just the letters. The letters are the vessels when they're strung together properly for this intelligent concept, which can have an impact. Intelligent concept can have an impact. It changes the way people think about things. It changes the way people act. Words matter because words are more than just words. So now let's think about this in the context of the Tzimtzum. So you have the intelligence which is associated with all these words. That is the light. Now, the letters on their own aren't really anything without the intelligence behind them. If we didn't have humans to make sense of things, now machines, we have AI, all these letters would be meaningless. They're only meaningful when they're attached to intelligence and for people who with intelligence mean something. So the letters on their own aren't anything. If I remove the intelligence from the letters, they're just letters. So by the contraction of the light, when the light was contracted away, what was left over was letters. Those letters are the kalim, they are the vessels which we're going to talk about in future episodes. Those are the vessels. In order for the vessels to come into being and come into focus, the orot, the orin sof, the great infinite light, need to be contracted. Now what was left over was these vessels. And then you have the vessels. When the light starts to come back into them, those vessels, those words start to take on meaning again. Just like I'm explaining things, I'm using these words, and when they're all strung together and someone starts listening to them, now they start taking on meaning because all these words, they're not just words, they also come together in some kind of intellectual discussion in a series of ideas that are being conveyed. So that, in a nutshell, is what the Great Contraction is and what it created. It created space for there to be these vessels so that the intelligence, the light, if you like, can come back in and can now create something which 
the vessels can now accept. So the vessels in some way take on a different form and they're now created in a, in a way in which they now accept the light, but they have a different intelligence to them because the light is much smaller. The light which is able to now create intelligences, if you like, to use the analogy, which are other, which are creation. No longer just creator, but it's now creation. So in summary, we've explained what the symptom is very, very quickly. And that was a summary of, of the last episode. Then we went into some of the background of whether the symptom, whether the contraction was actual literal contraction or was it not literal contraction. We explained some of the philosophical ideas behind it. We explained some of the discussion or disagreement amongst it. Then we tried to give some analogy to what the symptom was first from the idea of concentrate and then from the idea of a teacher trying to explain something to a student or the idea of trying to do some marketing. So you're trying to market an idea and market a product so that the actual audience should be able to understand it. And then we went on to explain the idea of letters and that letters could be Kalim, could be the vessels. And then the Orot, the light, the Orin Sof, that was the intelligence which is associated with those vessels. And you can see how they could be seem seemingly two separate things, but when they come together, they become very, very powerful. So this has been the second episode on the idea of Tzimtzum. Next episode, we're going to move on to talk about the Kalim, the vessels, and then we'll talk about the Shvirata Kalim, the breaking of the vessels, and uh, the implications of that. And that will then wrap up my series on the Kabbalah of the Ari, the Kabbalah of Rabbi Isaac Luria, through the writings of Rabbi Chaim Vital. This has been Levi Brackman with Truths, Jewish Wisdom for Today. Thank you so much for joining, and until next time.